Hey, Cole, are you ready to put away your daddy issues and take out your mommy issues this week? Well, according to my therapist, I have both. (laughs) Well, good, because this week I'm talking about the 1980 film Mother's Day. Welcome to Second to Die, a horror fiction podcast where we talk about lots of things. And sometimes horror. And sometimes horror. I'm Max. And I'm Cole. We're your hosts. Thanks for choosing to listen to us this week. I am talking today about a movie, well, so tomorrow's Mother's Day, theoretically. If you're listening to this on the day it releases. If not, why didn't you? (laughs) Well, yeah. So, if you listen to this when it comes out, tomorrow's Mother's Day. So, I'm doing a Mother's Day episode. By doing a film called Mother's Day. And we are resurrecting the theme that we had many, many months ago where Max does something on theme and I didn't know to. No. Well, you know, you can't always win, I guess. But okay. So I'm doing this movie. I had not seen it before. It's kind of a controversial movie. And I'll give my first ever content warning. My movie does have some, well, really one graphic depiction of rape. I'm not going to be like narrating it it's not really my jam but i will be mentioning that scene because this movie was criticized actually for its depiction of violence and rape and was actually banned in the united kingdom because of that but let's get into it mother's day 1980 directed co-written and produced by charles kaufman and michael hertz also co-written by warren lee it was not 100 percent successful when it was released in the u.s but it became kind of a cult film And so a lot of people have watched it now and has a lot of people have analyzed it. And I read this before watching it. And so I went into it with the, this mindset and it helped appreciate them for me to appreciate the movie. Basically people have said that it's a satire of our quote TV society. The film is littered with references to pop culture. Like you see a lot of like star Trek shit and action figures and like Sesame street stuff, GI Joe, King Kong. They eat like, kids cereal and it's like stuff like that so there's a lot of this just like pop culture in your face stuff to be fair mm -hmm. i would also eat a lot of kids cereal if i were not vain yeah it's so bad for you but cereal is so good so good i used to sleep eat cereal (laughs) i don't i don't know how much we've talked about my sleepwalking on this podcast a little bit, I think. A little bit. My legs are constantly covered in bruises, and I used to eat in my sleep. It's fine. One time I found my phone charger in my car. It's fine. <laughs> anyway, you were saying? Okay. So another thing people said about it, I'll just do some of the critic stuff. In the Gorehound's Guide to Splatter Films of the 1980s, they wrote that this movie makes pointed stabs at consumerism, pop psychology, TV culture, parental expectations, and even the gratuitous excess of the 70s. Keep in mind, this is 1980, so we're going off the 70s. So yeah, so basically, if you look at the movie in that light, it's actually kind of cool and actually fairly enjoyable. There is definitely a rape aspect to it. The scene, it's it's really one scene, and it's not that long. So I think people maybe were like more sensitive to that in 1980 because I feel like now like that wouldn't even raise a flag because I I don't know maybe that's why we shouldn't have scenes like that in movies because people get desensitized to them yeah um mm, mm, mm. there are many many reasons why we shouldn't have those scenes in movies but anyways I'll get to it when I get to it and I'll also give a warning before I talk about it so if you want to hear me talk about the 
other, the rest of the movie and skip that scene, then I'll let you know how to do that. Okay. Also, there's a 2010 remake of this movie that I didn't watch or research at all, so I have no idea what it's like. Okay. Moving on. So, the, basically, the movie opens up, and there's this, like, self-help seminar situation, and there's this, like, young couple, and they're really cool and groovy, and then there's this, like, old woman, and the old woman is, like, friends with them, and she actually, it's, like, the kind of self-help seminar that it was really kind of like the cult that I was in. It's, like, I don't know, that kind of a weird situation, and so the woman offers to take the kids home, like, she offers to ri- drive them home because they didn't have a car, so they're, like, okay, and then ultimately, the woman fakes her car breaking down, gets out, and then these two guys come up to the car and immediately behead the young man in the car with a machete, like his head just gets lopped off. And then the woman they drag out, and they kind of like attack her a little bit, and the mother is like standing, I say the mother, she's their mother, we learned this shortly. The mother is like standing there just like grinning at them with this like really crazy, crazy look on her face. The mother is played by... Uh, well, the actress's name is Beatrice Pons. She's credited, though, as Rose Ross. And actually, her and her sons, the actress who play her sons, are all are credited as different names in their actual names. And I don't know why. Maybe because the characters are so evil. Maybe, but that, I don't know. That they don't want to be Googleable from it. Oh, wait, 80s. Huh, huh, huh. Never mind. <laughs> there was no Google. There was no Google in the 80s. So then the woman that she was giving a ride home to kind of like gets free of the son and crawls to the old woman asking for help. And the old woman takes out a rope and strangles her to death. And then it's the intro credits starting off strong. Yeah. I mean, I don't mind, like I don't mind a horror movie starting off with like a really horrific part to begin with. I think it's kind of a good thing. Yeah. All right. So the quick breakdown of this is that this movie is essentially about these three girls, Trina, Abby and Jackie and they're like friends from college and they're gonna they, they do this thing where every year they plan a reunion and, and I say reunion it's just the three of them and they plan a trip and every year one of them chooses the trip and it's a surprise for the other ones so in the personalities Trina is like this like Beverly Hills girl when we see her she's like having this like crazy pool party with like hors d'oeuvres and swimsuits and like cocaine everywhere basically like oh, you do yeah and someone roller skating around a pool which is don't do that it's bad. Roller skating. The pool part is like whatever. So anyways, Abby is the opposite of Trina. She's super mousy. She lives with her mother who's like really overbearing and also like kind of invalid. And then Jackie is like a career woman from New York City and she lives with a heinous boyfriend. They all get this telegram that's like, it's the reunion time. So they all meet up and I can't remember which one of them organized the trip, but it turns out telegram. It's a telegram. Yeah. Like literally a telegram. Oh, boy. All right. Anyway, turns out. Yeah, those are things. So it turns out that whoever organized this has decided that this year's trip is going to be a camping trip in this place called the Deep Barrens. Let me tell you, if you ever surprised me with a trip that turned out to be a camping trip, I would never be going with you anywhere again for the rest of my life. Okay, but in the, like, more glamping end of that, there's, like, a resort, I think it's in maybe Norway or something, where it's, like, glass domes, and you watch the Aurora Borealis above your bed, and it's climate-controlled. Does that count? I mean, I think that that would be nice for a day, but then, like, what do you do during the day? Enjoy the cold weather. Mm. We don't have that here. I like cold weather. 
You know what else is fun for trips? Cities with like things to do and stores and groceries and power and like amenities. I like cities. Okay. So. And then we can see the sky from the city. Okay. So they're heading out there, right? There is this like classic foreshadowing scene where they stop to get directions from this guy at a corner store. And they're like, how do we get to Deep Barrens? And he's like, oh, don't go up to Deep Barrens. Like, you don't want to go up there. But they ignore him because that's what people do in horror movies. And then they accidentally, like, knock over his Apple display. And then he gets really mad and is like, you ladies deserve to whatever happens to you in Deep Barrens. Which is, like, super harsh considering what I'm about to tell you. And also he calls them lesbians. Which is not a slur or an insult. So, But... All the lesbians that I know knock over apples. It happens. Yeah. They just, I don't know, knocking over apples on their prowl for snatch. Anyways, no. Ooh, that, ooh, that escalated about as sharply as the intro to this movie. Lesbians don't like apples. They like vagina. Well, not necessarily, actually. So, okay, let's, let's keep moving. Yeah, we don't need to get into a gender conversation. Let's go. <laughs> we have that conversation a lot, I feel. Okay. So, okay. There's this... I'll bring up this one scene. It has nothing to do with the movie, other than I guess it's supposed to establish, like, some of the personality of these girls. But they're talking back on how they play this prank on this womanizer guy named... Well, they call... He makes... His last name is, like, Dobbs or something. He makes them call him Dobber. No. But... <laughs> No, he's a womanizer. I'm not moaning Dauber in bed. Well, they kind of make him out to be a womanizer, but they do it in this way that like kind of like classic 80s where it's like he basically is just talking about like wanting to have sex with with her with um I think it's Jackie or something. She like brings him to like a baseball field and they're going to have sex on the pitcher's mound. And the whole thing is he's like, yeah, let's go have sex. Let's have sex. But that is what they went there for. And so she's like, hold on one second. Um, and she goes to like do something. I don't, it's not really clear. So he takes off his clothes and he is actually very cute and you get to see his butt, but then they turn the lights on and they're like laughing at him over the loudspeaker and he like freaks out and starts flailing about and you actually get to see balls and peen. Also exciting. I know. Which is why I bring up the scene because I like representation of male genitalia in movies and I think we should bring it, bring more of that into modern times. I support universal objectification. Yes. I mean, women show their boobs all the time in movies. I think, you know, men should definitely have to show their penises, especially if it's like a Henry Cavill film. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So. Next Superman, just be naked. So anyways, okay. So then that's like the big joke on him. Blah, blah, blah. So then after we see like naked men, we have to even it out. So then there's a skinny dipping scene with the three ladies because they're just three single girls just by themselves so what are they gonna do oh they're gonna take off their clothes and splash each other in the water Mm. too bad there's no pillows because they're camping and camping is horrifying so they're just gonna get in the water instead oh also lakes are fucking disgusting leeches i'm just gonna say it leeches i lakes with like mud bottoms it literally gives me a physical reaction in my feet thinking about touching the bottom of a lake with a mud bottom. I am such a city person. I cannot handle that. I want like pavement or like sand. Like that's your options. Oh, mud. It mm, it just feels like disgustingness. It's squishy. 
Actually, I had no idea what real mud was because I grew up in Pensacola and most of the soil there is sand. Uh, and then I moved to Illinois and I learned what mud was. It's disgusting. I, I honestly can't swim in lakes. It's just like, it's too, mm, it's too gross. Also, this is not necessarily going to make a whole lot of sense to you, but I have like a weird thing about swimming in lakes because I watched Creep Show at a very young age and like one of the little like short story things is um about these people that jump on a raft and there's this like blobby thing and it comes up and like they get stuck on the raft because the blob is like trying to like kill them but it's like on the surface of the water anyways if you've seen that creep show is great if you've seen that that's great and it traumatized me as a kid for a long time but it's great yeah well there's also a really problematic one where it's like an indian that kills people but like well he's a wooden indian like the kind that they used to have outside of tobacco stores and he comes to life and kills people anyway this isn't about creep show yeah let's get back to mother's day Okay, so that night, the girls are abducted by the two guys. They're taken back to the house, and the guys are like, the the mother is there, and she, and they're all trying to decide, quote, who's going to go first. And they all decide that Jackie is going to be the one that goes first. So they take Jackie outside. And I guess this is where I'll do my content warning, where it's going to be the scene that involves rape, so you can skip ahead like three or four minutes, and you'll be done with it. Okay. That being said, this scene is super fucking weird. They put Jackie down on a park bench, and then they, like force her to do this like weird improv skit situation where they're like you have to pretend like you're oh no wait one of them pretends like he's walking a dog and she's just supposed to pretend like she's on the park bench just hanging out and then like they attack her and start to like try to rape her and the mother is in a lawn chair watching all this and then she stops them and is like you didn't restrain her hand properly and it becomes clear that she's like coaching them situations and how to like sexually assault people in like different everyday wilderness situations and that's why improv is terrible (laughs) yeah that that's why so then they dress jackie up like a little girl and give her raggedy ann doll and make her walk around like a little girl and attack her again and then that time they actually do rape her while the mother watches like everything oh boy yeah that's upsetting and unnecessary yeah i mean we had family game night growing up but it was not like that No, it wasn't. So then they go inside and the mother says something weird about Queenie's out there and they need to bolt the doors, but they don't explain who Queenie is until later. The next morning they get up, the boys are brushing their teeth. Oh, one of them brushes his teeth with beer. By the way, I actually thought it was really funny. It's it, it it's part of like the whole consumerism thing. They're just it's like all this like um dec not decadence, but like I don't know. Whatever you call brushing your teeth with beer. It's just like the whole house is like littered with um, like commercial stuff and action figures. And there's like slogans on the wall like in spray paint. I mean, the place is like disgusting, like a disgusting mess. But Gluttony, hedonism. Yeah, it's like gluttony, hedonism, that kind of a thing. So then there's a montage where the mom makes the two sons do exercises outside, which is weird. And she makes them do, like, normal exercise stuff. You know, push-ups, pull-ups, chopping up dolls with machetes, throwing knives at pictures of women. What normal, healthy people do to work out. I should work that into my morning routine. No. And then Trina and Abby, they were tied up in a room, and they end up kind of getting free, and they decide that they're going to do, the like, the dumbest thing to escape, where Trina gets into a sleeping bag and is lowered out the window. Whatever. It ends up working... And then Trina comes back into the house to free Abby. And they're like, we have to get Jackie. So then they go and look for Jackie. And (laughs) Jackie is like, not doing okay. Understandably. Yeah. 
So they go to the woods. They have to kind of carry Jackie, but they realize that Jackie can't really go on. So Trina goes to run to try to get this car, and Abby stays with Jackie. The car is kaput. It won't work. And then, so then Trina sees a police officer roll up, and she flags him down. But, oh, no, it's not the police officer. It's Ike, who is one of the brothers. The brothers are named Ike and Adley. Oh, Adley's not a real name, though. That sounds like one of those other names. I don't know. All right, so then Trina's like, oh, no, you're not a police officer, so she runs away. She go, she ends up going back to Abby, and Jackie at this point has to come from her wounds. And she's dead, and um, Abby is kind of just sitting there cradling her corpse in, like, kind of a weird way. And then Trina, like, sees her and, like, lets out this, like, primal howl because she's, like, so upset. But she's being chased by Ike at this point, so that seems like a real bad way to, like, let the psycho killer rapist know exactly where you are. We all make choices. That was a choice. Yeah. And then Abby is like, we'll get those bastards. And because they want to avenge Jackie. Oh, because also this is a revenge movie. Okay. So then shortly after that, we learn who Queenie is. Queenie was the mother character's sister, but the boys think she's dead. And the mother's like, no, I think she's out there prowling. Okay. That'll come up later in a really uneventful, stupid way. God. So the next morning, Trina and Abby put their hair into braids and put on headbands and get serious. What? That's what they do. <laughs> you can tell they're serious because there's a headband involved. Yes. They could just leave and be safe, but they're not going to do that because they want to get revenge, right? So they bring Jackie's corpse back to the house and prop her up against the tree and explain that they want Jackie to see this. And they want, like, Jackie to see the revenge, but, like, she's dead. It's weird. Do not judge them for how they process their trauma. Okay, well, we'll let that slide. But then afterwards, Abby leans down and gives Jackie's corpse a kiss on the lips. She's been dead for literally a day at this point. Okay. Um, trying to stand my ground here, but not really much to stand on. Mmm, tastes like necrophilia. He's winking at me, gentle listener. It's very upsetting. The soft and supple nope. lips of a corpse. Oh, God. Corpses do go squishy after rigor mortis wears off. Thank you. They do. I know. I've read Smoke Gets in Your Eyes. It's really good, gentle listener, if you haven't read it. Not a joke, folks. Just a fact. Okay. So the girls sneak into the house. Um, Abby stabs Adley through the neck with what looks like a long metal knitting needle. So I'm Ooh. sure you appreciate that. That's exciting. And then Trina slams the claw side of the hammer into his crotch, which explodes in blood. Which he deserves. Yes. Then they suffocate him. Which he also deserves. Oh, also the blood in this is like this like weird pink foamy stuff. It does not look like good blood. It's weird. That's upsetting. He should have gotten that checked out. <laughs> Too late. <laughs> so so Ike then starts to kind of wrestle with them. They dump Drano into his mouth and then run away. He runs after them. They and they end up taking like a big old 80s honking TV and like slamming it on top of his head. Doesn't Drano kill you? Well, I mean, they don't make him like drink it. They just put it in his mouth and he spits it out. Oh, okay. 80s TV. Big. Conking. Hit his head. Keep right. Going. So then his head is like a TV, which is also very sort of like metaphorical. God, that's heavy handed. Yeah. And that doesn't kill him. But it does hurt him. So then he's crawling towards Trina and she grabs an electric Thanksgiving turkey carver and like turns it on and starts like stabbing him with it. And that does kill him. 
and like she's stabbing it and you see her face and it just like all of a sudden all this like fake blood just like spooges all over her face in like this fun bloody bukkake moment blood cocky blood cocky mm. delicious okay so then the mother comes in and abby like distracts her by pretending like she got stabbed in the back because i don't know they have to distract like a seven-year-old woman they can't just overpower her and then so then they they do overpower the the mother and jackie has this like weird freak out moment where she starts hearing her own mother and like you can tell that it's like all her mommy issues coming back and she goes and grabs this like inflatable blow-up pair of breasts that just happens to be there what and then she smothers the mother Nipple first with the big inflatable breasts and kills her. It's like breastfeeding of death. Yeah. But that's the image, I assume, that the filmmakers were going for is like a breastfeeding, but instead of giving life yeah, and nourishment. The only weird thing is it was like a pool toy inflatable breast. Like they're clear, but they have, they're clear with like nipples painted on them. That's strange. I don't know what the purpose of that is. That's so fucking weird. Okay, so then there's, like, a wrap-up where Abby is feeling all, like, super down and traumatized. And Trina's like, stay strong. There's a reason we survived. We were meant to survive. And I don't know why, but I laugh because she was like, we're meant to survive. And all I can think of is, well, fuck Jackie's drag then. Oh, God. Yeah. So, okay, last scene of the movie, they're starting to walk away, and then this crazy old woman jumps out from the bushes, and they do, like, this still frame of her midair jumping, and she looks, like, kind of, like, feral and shit, and it's obviously, like, the Queenie character that was referenced, but that's the end. I hate it. The ending was dumb. To be honest, the movie was kind of enjoyable. This would be, like, my little wrap-up final thoughts, but I actually, it had, it has this quality that's, like, almost this camp to the level of, like, John Waters if he did, like, a horror movie where it was just, like, really weird. I can see why people watch this, like, late at night in, like, a dive bar or something. Obviously, like, I don't love depictions of rape and horror and that used as, like, a horrific element. I think it's overdone and, like, just kind of cheap. But it's actually not as graphic. Like, the scene is not that graphic, and it is very short. So it didn't bother me like I thought it would after when I first read about it, I was like, Oh, this is just going to be a movie full of like rape left and right. It's not like that. So don't get discouraged. It does have like a scene, but to be honest, I feel like you see worse stuff on like television now. Outlander. (laughs) Oh, Outlander is a, is a ride, but I do like it. Anyways, that's about it. That's basically all my final thoughts. I did think it was a great, like, Looking at it from the lens of it's a commentary on consumerism and stuff, I think it actually did work. I think it was well done. The acting was well done. I mean, it was very cheesy, you know, early 80s, late 70s horror. It had very much so that quality, but in a very watchable way. So anyways, oh, last final thought. This movie is called Mother's Day. It has nothing to do with Mother's Day. It is not Mother's Day in the movie. So it's kind of weird that I chose it for Mother's Day because I thought it would have something to do with it, but whatever, it's still called it. So I say it counts. Anyways, that's Mother's Day. Now tell me what you're going to talk about. All right, Peaches. I've got a bit of a surprise for you. This week, I am talking about 2015's The Suffering by Ren Chapeco. And you, as well as our gentle listeners, may be thinking, that author sounds really familiar. And you would be correct because Ren Chapeco wrote the book I did last week, The Girl from the Well. The Suffering is actually the direct sequel to that. So unless I'm mistaken, this is my first sequel. So... Well, 
I was going to say, it sounds familiar to me because I'm pretty sure that she stole that title from my autobiography that I wrote in high school. So, so moody. My world is suffering and sadness. Yikes. Got this a lifestyle. <laughs> Don't laugh at me. Oh, I shall. All right. So I was really impressed with the horror scenes in The Girl from the Well. So I was like, sure. Why not? The horror scenes? The horror oh. scenes. Horror scenes. Don't get too excited. Now you got me all excited. It is a YA. So I thought, sure. Why not? Take a chance. I mean, I thought The Girl from the Well was okay, to be honest. I thought it sounded cool. The dialogue was so bad. I it mean, was it's so YA. shitty. No, no. It was not like YA bad. It was like bad it was so bad anyway let's take a look at the cover this one was also done by torberg davern uh it's basically just like a ghost girl walking through some woods it's sufficiently creepy you know what you're getting into i'm not gonna lie i do actually enjoy when the cover is up front like that and not like daddy's little girl with a child on a skeleton oh it's a direct sequel so that that must be um kamiko Okiku. Okiku. <laughs> You're going to cut the part where you just say like the first <laughs> Japanese name that pops into your head. No, I knew there was like a K sound in it. Yes, that's Okiku. So let's go ahead. What's her name? Sailor Moon? Okay, let's move on. Sailor Moon is amazing. Thank you very much. <laughs> Otaginashi? Continue. God. All right, let's take a look at the part. 17-year-old Tark knows what it is to be powerless, but Okiku changed that. A restless spirit who ended life as a victim and started death as an avenger. She's groomed Tark to destroy the wicked. But when darkness pulls them deep into Aokigahara, which I probably butchered the pronunciation, known as Japan's suicide forest, Okiku's justice becomes blurred and Tark is the one who will pay the price. Oh, it's a suicide forest story. Yeah. That's like, uh, I mean, because that's obviously a real place. Yes. Um, I saw the movie The Forest with Natalie Dormer. I don't know like what debt she paid to do that movie because she is a goddess. But holy smokes, that movie was awful. I saw it in the theater and it was fucking terrible. Did That's not one we watched together, was it? Um, I don't think so. I, I remember, see, I saw it in the theater when it came out and I don't remember when it came out. All I remember is it was really crowded. Gross. I hate crowded anything. I don't think so. I think I saw it with Adam or something, but. All right. So we know that two years have gone by since book one and things have changed. The biggest change, this book is from Tark's point of view. Tark was the tattooed 15 year old? Yes. Okay. But he no longer has tattoos because they were holding in Chio. And so when Chio was released, the tattoos vanished. Um... So he's just like a normal Asian dude with blue eyes. Okay. So, whatever. Um, But if you remember, part of what I liked about The Girl in the Well was that it was from Okiku's point of view. And I thought that, like, her limited level of omniscience gave it an interesting quality, yada, yada, yada. So, mm, we put our point of view in a teenager's head, and now it feels a lot more like a YA novel. Which, by the way, I read a ton of YA. A lot of my friends read a ton of YA. I don't know if she'll want me to call her out by name, but I do have a friend who has a very intense theory that 
Sarah J. Moss, which is a popular YA author, is trying to launch a perfume line because every single character is described by a very specific scent, like salt and citrus (laughs) or like moonlight and dust, like bullshit like that. Um, And so she's like, Sarah J. Moss is releasing a perfume line. I'm convinced. And to be honest, I buy into it. Carry on. Moving on. Whatever. Let's dive into our story. So... The book opens with Tark trapping a spirit, letting us know that a combination of Okiku and Kagura, if you don't remember her, she was one of the shrine maidens that survived, have turned him into an exorcist. Anyway, he traps this spirit in a Raggedy Ann doll, which is hmm, groundbreaking. Well, this is probably written before that, huh? Well, because that's the real story. Annabelle. Right. That's a real story. Was yes. this, how long ago was this written? Do we? This is 2015. Oh, for some reason, I was thinking these were like a long time ago. Also, Annabelle and the Raggedy Ann doll, like that's a real story from the 70s. I just said it was a real story. Yes. But I was thinking these were written like a long time ago. I don't know. Maybe maybe because it's a myth. I, in my head, I was thinking that these predated that. Oh, because of Okiku's story being a myth? Yeah, I don't know. For some reason in my head, I was like, but this is a really old story. But I guess it's not. No, they are very modern. Okay, okay. Shortly after that, we get a scene of what Okiku's hunting looks like. Oh, wait. I'm sorry. Tark calls her Ki. So we get to endure that now. Like one syllable? Like K-I. No. I hate it so much. He's like, hey, Ki. And I'm like, mm, 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 no. I, I can't decide if that's better or worse than Kiki. <laughs> if you go by Kiki, I'm so sorry for my husband's behavior. <laughs> Basically, she leads him to her victim, and then he literally just, like, waits in the car while she uses her spirit energy to drown her victims. She's killing killers again, right? Yeah, she's still killing killers. Okay. Um, Which I don't know if I mentioned last week. That's how she kills them, is she basically, like, drowns them with her spirit power. So they'll just be, like, on dry land, and all of a sudden their lungs will fill up and they'll die. Mm. Because she died in a while. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. So She's like a waterbender. Imagery. She's a water spirit. Um, essentially, Okiku can't get more than about half a mile away from Tark without some other ghost trying to take her place. Um, <laughs> without some other hussy trying to take her man. Well, it, in case you can't remember, she literally chills out inside of the gaping hole left by Chio. And she doesn't want anyone to take her gaping hole. Well, it's Tark's gaping hole. Well, it's his gaping hole. But, it's, I mean, she lives in it. So. How progressive. She I fills know. his hole. Oh, God. All right. No. Mm-mm. This started funny, and Max was like, oh, you want to take it there? I'll take it there. And I did not want to go there. All right. Well, after killing a killer, after which we do get a scene of the killer's daughter being like, what happened to my daddy? Tark ends up going to a party. So content warning for mentions of sexual assault approaching. Um... It's a long story as to why he's there. I'm skipping over it. Like I said, this book is a lot more YA-ish. And I want to get more to the horror part, but I did want to talk about this scene. So it turns out Okiku wants to kill the teenager who's hosting the party. And Tark is like, mm, why? And then, because she can like read minds and they share a consciousness, Tark basically gets glimpses of the teenager who's hosting and he gets girls drunk and then takes advantage of them. And Tark is super disgusted, but he's still like, "Mm, we only kill killers. He hasn't killed anyone. 
we should probably go to the police instead. But then Tark decides that he's just going to like call the guy out and be like, I know what you do. Even though like the guy's like a linebacker and Tark is not. Mm. And so the linebacker guy starts to like beat the living shit out of him. And Okiku shows up and she's like, oh, he's planning on killing you. Now's my time to shine. But the linebacker guy runs away and Okiku is frustrated and Tark is like, you're just as bad as Chio was, which causes them to fight for a majority of the book. Like I said, super YA. I'm going into all this, A, because I support Okiku wanting to harm someone who was taking advantage of girls. And also because I want you to understand exactly why I didn't like this book when I get to my rating at the end. (laughs) But we're going to drop that and we're going to move on to the actual horror story here. Slight spoiler, Okiku does end up killing linebacker dude. So Tark and Callie, which if you don't remember, Callie is Tark's cousin. They've been planning to go to Japan to visit Kagura, and Kagura has been contacted by a team from a Ghost Hunters show to visit Aokigahara. I really wish I knew how to say that in like a more fluid way. I should have looked it up. Uh, which, as we know from the blurb, is referred to as Japan's suicide forest. So I'm going to give you a few facts about this forest. If you don't like openly discussing suicide, please feel free to skip forward if need be. I've said it before, and I will say it again, gentle listener. Please take care of yourself. I will be here on the other end. So it's estimated that about 100 people per year commit suicide in this forest. There are annual search parties to find the bodies. And there are enough that there are enough suicides that statistics are recorded for method of suicide, though I feel like it would be disrespectful to use that as like a sensational hook and talk about it here on the podcast. If you really want to know, it's real easy to Google There are signs throughout the forest encouraging people to rethink their decision and to not harm themselves while providing contact information for help. Camping is allowed in the area, and actually it's kind of seen that if you bring a tent, you haven't fully decided whether or not to harm yourself. And so there's a a literal team of people, and their job is just to go through the area, find campsites, and talk to campers, and they have like de-escalation training and stuff. Oh, that would be really nice. It's very interesting. Anyway, Kagura was asked to help the people of the show because her father was a famed researcher about this forest, including claiming to have visited a mythical village in the forest itself called Aito. I did some cursory research. It doesn't seem like there is a mythical village in that forest, but I could be wrong because a Japanese horror film called Suicide Forest Village Just came out. So if you Google anything about Mythical Village and Aokigahara, all you get is stuff about that movie. And when I say just came out, I mean like came out this year, like in 2021. So all of that, those light statistics and cheerful facts aside, Kagura and the show crew have disappeared. So Tark and Kali and Okiku, obviously, head to Japan They're staying with Kagura's grandmother in an inn that she runs. It's super cute. There's hot springs. There they look through a lot of research that Kagura had translated. And also Okiku acts as like an interpreter for Tark because he can't read Japanese. So she's like, this says that, that says this. And we learned that girls in this village were being groomed as sacrifices and then killed on their wedding day in a complicated ritual to open and control the power of a hellmouth. 
Mm. It's always a hell mouth. Marriages are hell. Well, weddings. My marriage is lovely. <laughs> my mother and I just, or my mother-in-law and I just screamed at each other a lot in the days leading up to the event. And on the actual day, I think. Oh, yes. I said fuck you to her. Yeah. Why, you ask? Why, you ask? You may be asking why. So the gentleman who showed up to play the piano music for our processional, which my mother-in-law insisted on because live music is classy and pre-recorded music is trashy, showed up 10 minutes before I was supposed to walk down the aisle. I was still not completely dressed, and she sent someone in to come and get me to show him where to set up because she didn't want to do it herself. So I walked out in sweatpants and a t-shirt to show him, and as I'm trying to get to him to show him where to go, she cuts me off and in front of everyone, clearly trying to embarrass me, goes, nice tux. And so I said, fuck you. And then I kept walking. She's also known for the excellent line leading up to her wedding of, it's my wedding too. When you really think about it, it's actually my wedding. It's my mother, ladies and gentlemen. At which point I said very loudly, I beg your pardon. And then Max very intelligently removed me. I believe (laughs) you grabbed my hand, removed me physically from the room before my panhandle could show Anyways, let's move on. Back to the story. So they join a search party the next morning, and Tark sees a camera on the ground. And when he bends down to reach for it, everyone else disappears, and boom, he's in the village. Oh, the mythical village. Yes, the mythical <laughs> village. It's So it's like, I don't know, like a weird barrier that he passed through. And shortly after stepping into the main street, a ghostly woman in tattered clothes and long hair comes tearing down the street towards him on all fours, which is terrifying. Yeah, people walk in. There's something disturbing about seeing people walk on all fours. Yeah, it was very like The Exorcist. It was creepy. But in the right context, I love somebody on all fours. (laughs) Anyway. Thanks for listening, folks. Oh, boy. Continue. Uh, So he flees to a house. And, like, shuts at the door and puts a seal on it, like a, a a seal with characters written on it to keep her out. So, Tark then decides to watch the videos on the camera. The first one is the group from the show with Kagura. They're walking through the forest, and no one notices the girl in the background in her wedding finery with Hikimayo. So, here... That term is used to cover the entire makeup for that beauty trend. But when I looked it up, hikimayo was just the eyebrow part. What's hikimayo, you might ask? I'm going to tell you. The entire appearance is very long hair swept up into a bun, face painted white, eyebrows shaved, charcoal smudges high on the forehead, and blackened out teeth. Oh boy. Honestly, though, Japanese makeup trends are super fascinating. If you... If y'all want to fall down a rabbit hole, Google like Japanese fat, um, makeup trends because like there's some really crazy ones. Yeah. Isn't there that one where it's like super orange face with like, oh, what is that called? With like blonde hair and stuff. Yeah. Yes. I don't remember. I can't remember what that's called, but that was like one too. Like it's like they go all out. Yeah. No, it's very impressive. If you look up Hikimayo, you'll see a lot of like classical art that has women portrayed with that appearance and you will recognize it immediately. Black teeth, huh? A lot of times they aren't smiling. That's crazy though. But yeah, they would put stuff on their teeth to turn them black. Hmm. 
Um, so yeah, sufficiently terrifying image of like this girl just like lurking in the forest dressed like that. The second video is in the village and Kagura is begging the crew to stick close to her and head to the temple. And then the third one is a lone crew member and he's like, help me, help me. And then he gets dragged away by a ghost. So it's like, eh, found footage. Sure. Groundbreaking. So Tark heads to the temple and it's boarded up. When he looks in, it's completely dark. But then a twig snaps behind him and he glances away. And when he looks back, he sees nothing but blue. And just as he's wondering what happened, he sees a pupil contract. AKA it's a blue eye that he's staring at. Which is a wonderful nod to the white and red creepypasta, which is one of my favorites. I'm not familiar. Breaking it down super Super simplified. The story is a man checks into a hotel, and when he checks in, he's told not to open a specific door. We'll just say room number six for the sake of this. So he goes to his room, and he spends the night, and... Oh, no. It's on his way to the room. He gets curious, so he looks through the door, and he sees a woman facing away from the door, like, sobbing, and she's very, very pale. Well, then he goes, spends the night, sleeps, and on his way back by the door to check out, he looks and all he sees is red through the keyhole. And as he's checking out, he's like, so what happened in that room anyway? And she was like, oh, a couple was killed in there, but they were very strange. They had very pale skin, but red eyes. Oh. But here's the thing. Someone's eye would have to be so close to a keyhole. Or so close to, in the case of this story, a space between boards for all you could see to be their iris. Yeah. It makes actually no sense when you think about it logically. It's probably something that's easier to write about than, like, you couldn't portray it because it doesn't make visual sense. No. But I love creepypasta, and they're not meant to make sense. So, anyway, I've been rambling. So, I'm just going to start wrapping shit up real fast. Tark realizes that these are extra strong spirits, and not just any doll can do. He is going to have to exercise them by trapping them into special dolls that were made for their wedding day that looks just like them in their wedding finery. Hmm. So he starts doing that. He sets about doing that. He eventually meets up with Kagura, and they trap all but one. That one factors in. So eventually they end up in caves beneath the village. They get separated. And Tark ends up finding a pit, and inside is the grooms of all the brides, because for years before their wedding day, the girls were only allowed to interact with their prospective grooms, which made them very attached. Then on their wedding day, the grooms were killed in front of the girls, or their girls were shown the dead grooms, and then they were sacrificed at peak misery, which was a big part of the ritual. Yeesh. Basically, the girls have to be sacrificed while miserable, but a willing sacrifice at the end would close the gate. This is important. So, Tark finds Kugoro's father's body down in the pit. Then, the ghost of Hotoki, who is the girl who was intended to be the final sacrifice and has blue eyes. Oh no, she shows up. And y'all wanted a twist? The boy she was supposed to marry was Kugoro's father. And she killed herself, which ruined the ritual, and then set the ghosts of the other girls free. And in the chaos, when everyone was being killed by the ghosts of the other girls, Kugura's father was able to escape. That's how he's been to the village before he grew up there. Okay. 
So Tark makes his way to where the Hellgate is, and the ghost of the priest who was performing the ritual is preparing to sacrifice Okiku as the final sacrifice, because a spirit girl is fine. It works. Oh, I forgot to mention, they've gotten separated somewhere along the way, leaving a gaping hole. Um, And so the priest harming Tark causes her misery. So Tark gets knocked out. But when he comes to, the blue-eyed ghost emerges from his gaping hole to fight. Oh, so the blue-eyed ghost was in Tark. Yes. So one last ghost bride emerges and she kills the priest. But too late. The ritual is complete. And the Hellgate energy rushes, where? Into Tark's gaping hole. Oh, boy. That boy's hole cannot get a break. I'm so sorry for everyone listening to this who just has to hear me say gaping hole over and over again. He and Kagura trap the last ghost bride. And then Hatoki, the blue-eyed ghost, willingly sacrifices herself, which closes the gate and sets everyone free. But sadly, because Okiku was fully sacrificed, she's gone. Oh, no. But that's okay, because Tark uses the Hellmouth energy inside of him to bring her back, and that's basically the end. Oh. So does Tark have, like, super Hellmouth energy now? No, he used it all to bring her back. You think that, is there going to be a third book, you think? I hope not. (laughs) Uh, So what are your final thoughts on this? (laughs) So I actually don't think that there will be because she has since written another series called The Bone Witch, which is about geisha necromancers. Okay. Okay. There's a lot going on with that. I actually read the first one. It was pretty good. I'm not going to lie. I will probably listen to the audiobooks for all three. They're not horror, so I won't do them for the podcast. They're just like dark fantasy. Sure. I was kind of conflicted about how to read this book. On the one hand, it borrows a lot of horror elements that already exist. Things like the possessed Raggedy and all and the white and red story and whatnot. So it felt a little recycled. Also, unlike book one, which was a horror novel with YA elements, this was definitely a YA novel with horror elements. I didn't even mention like he has like a love interest. He has a crush on her name is Kendall, but it's spelled K-E-N-D-E-L-E. So maybe it's Kendall. I have no idea. I didn't care. I literally did not give a flying fuck. It could have been removed and it wouldn't have affected the story at all. Mm. At all. Whatsoever. I hated it. That said, I still think I'm going to get this one three out of five bridal dolls. It would be lower, but the author's love of the culture and the history that she's weaving into this story and her horror imagery specifically is actually still really good. And it boosts it for me. Also, there's a lot of scenes when he's trapping ghosts and stuff and he's in the village. And because, of course, it's like all screens and, and stuff where there's like silhouettes moving and like... I don't know. It actually got like kind of creepy. Hmm. But if there's a third book, I'm not reading it. <laughs> well, if you were in the suffering, would you be killed? The only way that I can think of to put myself in the story would be if I lived in the village and everyone dies. So yes, hmm. that's just pretty logical. If you were in Mother's Day, would you be killed? Probably. I mean, I don't do well in wilderness scenes. And so then you add in like a psychopathic family out there, they would probably end up getting me if I were to find myself on 
being duped into some nefarious surprise camping trip that is bamboozled but yeah Anyway, thank you so much for listening, folks. If you would like to find us on social media, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter and Goodreads at Second to Die Pod. You can also email us questions, comments, concerns at Second to Die Pod at gmail.com or use your Ouija board because we are killing it. And remember, (laughs) that eye roll was audible. If you can't be first, you can always be second to die.